Hi, I'm Jen Fraser, PhD. I am the author of The Bullied Brain, and I'm super excited to have a conversation today with John Hewlin of Relationships and Revenue Podcast. Life is all about relationships, and great leaders heavily invest in those relationships. On the Relationships and Revenue Podcast, we talk about how to improve our most significant relationships at home so we can be better in our business relationships. We talk with experts from all over the world, representing many disciplines, about the best tips and strategies to become amazing people and amazing leaders. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. This is your host, John Hewlin. As always, thrilled to have each and every one of you with me today. And as you heard from that fantastic introduction, I have the one and only Dr. Jen Frazier. I had to say it at least once. Jen, how are you today? I'm great, John. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Really keen to unpack this whole issue and subject and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am super excited about it because it's, I won't say it's a unique subject, but I think your approach to it is unique. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to tackle that and to talk even further about your book. But before I get to that, for those who don't know you very well, I want to go into a little bit of your background here. So folks, if you don't know who Dr. Jen is, again, she doesn't like being called doctor. I'm only doing that for your benefit, not for hers. But uh, Jen, let's see. I want to make sure I get this right because, again, everybody who knows who sees this can see it. But if you're only listening, you know I do my research. So Dr. Jen, she helps transform organizational cultures Bringing them from, oh man, I'll make sure I say this right, from an outdated normalized bullying framework into a science-informed present. Somebody worked really hard on the wording of this. That may have been you, but definitely worked very hard on it. Uh, consultant, as you said earlier, author of the book, The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. Uh, your PhD is in comparative literature. I can't wait to jump into that and see how that applies to what we're talking about. Uh, today. Goodness, just so much. And of course, two most important titles, spouse and mom. Absolutely. So Jen, help us out here a little bit. We're hearing about a little bit about, about your background, but nobody wakes up one day and says, you know, I want to get a PhD in comparative literature. And someday I'm going to write not one, not two, but three books. And my guess is there's probably more in the future. Uh, write these books. So how did you get your start into all of this? And what led you to where you are today? Well, so basically, I'm an introvert. So when everybody else was saying, Oh, I've got my BA, and I'm going to go off and I'm going to launch into the work world. I was like, oh, there's got to be a way to stay in the library just a little <laughs> bit longer. There has got to be a way to keep reading books. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I ended up, um, I, I went to University of Toronto. And then I did my master's there. And then with the same attitude, I did my PhD there. And the reason I did comparative literature, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because 
it is an unusual degree. What we do in Complet, what we're trained to do is we take different discourses out of their silos and we put them into the arena and we see how the conversation changes when they're put in there. So um, this is actually The Bully Brain is my fourth book. And um, originally I took things like uh, rites of passage, you know, anthropology, mm-hmm. sociology, mm-hmm. initiation, great literature. And I put it into the arena and I, I tried to understand, you know, how do people transform from being readers of culture into writers of culture? Where does that come from? That kind of revolutionary drive to do something different. So that mm-hmm. was my first um, book. And then my second book, I was looking at um, writers in the World War One, World War Two era in England because I kept finding that they had this similar sort of um, theme in their work. And they were looking at the correlation between children, how children were raised, like the belief system around how we should raise children and war. And so um, that book was called Be a Good Soldier. And it, again, I mean, it was just fascinating to me to look at what the, the fancy term is pedagogy. The pedagogy just means how do we educate kids? How do we parent them? And I've always been interested in that. I'm really interested in parenting and mentoring and education. And so then I became a teacher and I, I taught at university for years. And then I taught in mm-hmm. university prep schools. So um, I, I'm very much the educator. And as you said, I'm a mom. I have two grown up boys now. And um I just, I, I've always been passionate, I guess, basically about kids. And so really, even though it seems strange, it was a natural progression for me. I got pulled in personally to a bullying crisis at one of the schools I was working at. Mm. And it was eye-opening for me. I was I was really um, naive and ill-prepared for what I encountered. And so it shocked me, like it shocked mm. me to the core. And the way I always cope with things that are really difficult is I write about them and I especially research them. So while a bunch of people have opinions about things, I'm like, yeah, well, (laughs) I'm going to go see what the experts know. So I took bullying and I took neuroscience and I put them into the arena together and it radically changed the conversation. Interesting. Okay. You can't leave that hanging out there for me anyway, I'm sure for the listeners and viewers as well. But so when you're talking about putting things like bullying and neuroscience together, and it radically changing, my next thought is, what does that mean? Well, what I found was so I was in, uh, I was working in a private school in Canada, uh, very prestigious, very wealthy, very established 100 year old private school. And it turned out that there was a bunch of bullying that was happening with four teachers, two students. And so I was like, this is terrible. This is shocking. This is harmful. This has got to stop. But I was told by the administrators that I was kind of blowing things out of proportion, wasn't really such a big deal. You know, kind of that idea of uh, old school coaching, they told me it was. I was like, old school coaching. Hmm. So I took that whole concept and idea, and this is what my people are saying to me, people I know well, I'd worked there for eight years. I respected them, et cetera. Off I went and I'm like, well, let's see what the research says. So I took a look at psychology. Yeah, it's it's very clear that adults who use bullying with children, it's highly uh, destructive. Then I looked at the psychiatry, same thing, very destructive. Adult bullying to children is extremely harmful. Then I hit the neuroscience and the neuroscience tells us things that most of us, I certainly didn't know. And I've been in the business of education for 20 years. I did not know 
that all forms of bullying and abuse, so all forms, including they don't touch the brain. I mean, they don't touch the body. They mm. are um, verbal abuse, psychological abuse, emotional neglect. They don't touch the body. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, and what the neuroscientists know, and this is extensive, replicated, peer-reviewed research over the course of the last 20 years, all forms of bullying and abuse can do significant damage to the brain, physical damage to the brain. It's visible on brain scans. Hmm. Okay. So does that come by way of before and after scans? Is that how that shows up? What they do is they look at, they compare scans of kids who have um, abuse in their background. So let's say, let's say you and I were looking at, at scans of kids who were sexually and physically abused at home. And we're looking at those scans and we're like, whoa, those are not healthy brains. They, they do not look well. They are harmed. We can physically see the damage to those brains when we use fMRI, MRI, EEG. You know, we have non-invasive technology that allows us to look at those brains even in action. It's mm. very sophisticated technology now. And this is why neuroscience has sort of gone leaps and bounds over the last mm. 20, 30 years. Now, if we looked at kids who'd been bullied, let's say just not even by adults, but bullied by peers, we would see similar damage to their brain. That mm. is what, in my understanding, and I think our laws reflect this, that is unknown. We do not have laws that take uh, non-physical sexual abuse very seriously. And even we don't even have laws that take physical abuse all that seriously to from adults to children. And so I'm like, I've become very passionate about how really we're outdated on the science. We teachers, we parents, we coaches, we've got to get educated on this. We need to know the neuroscience because there's no one who will stand up and say, yeah, you know what, when I go to work today, I'm really hoping to hurt kids' brains. <laughs> That's true. Nobody says that. Um, okay. So, and when you refer to coaches, you're talking about like sports coaches, correct? Yeah. Okay. The abuse that was occurring at the school was behind the closed doors of basketball practices. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was lots of homophobic slurs, lots of throwing down the clipboard, lots mm -hmm. of swearing, lots of berating, yelling in the face, yelling in the face and detaining if the kid tried to get away, scenes of public humiliation, um, that type of um, day in, day out onslaught against kids. Gotcha. Okay. I find the neuroscience angle of all this very intriguing. And the reason is because that's kind of become, I don't, I don't even know how it's possible to do this, but it's kind of become a hobby of mine in the last few years, just because I find it so fascinating in general, just the, the overall, just trying to understand the brain and what impact that has on every aspect of our lives. I certainly hadn't quite thought toward the bullying angle of that before but but it sounds like it's it's interesting when i heard you talk about your background in this comparative religion or comparative religion sorry comparative literature and taking two what seemed to be very different disciplines and taking them both out of what they're normally in and throwing them in together over to the side, it's like, okay, what happens when we do that? I find that extremely fascinating. What other arenas have you done that with? 
Well, in the book before, it was, again, me trying to unpack this crisis. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting to me um, because I, I came to understand that there's a systems problem. So it, it's a larger issue. And it's funny you said, oh, you must be working on a new book. Of course I am. And the new book is called <laughs> The Gaslit Brain. Because what I'm looking at is gaslighting. Like, why do we believe things even when when we're told they're not true? Like, we Mm. have objective reality. Objective facts can be checked. This is where science becomes really interesting to me. And I understand that truth is relative. I get that kind of stuff. I understand that you and I looking at the same situation might have a different experience. I get that. At the same time as we have to have some kind of foundation and grounding for what is true and what is false. So let me just give you an example of how fascinating this is in the abuse world. So to answer your question properly first, what did I put in the arena? I looked at the law and I looked at bullying and abuse done by adults to children. And what's really interesting about that is, so this book was called Teaching Bullies. And this book, Mm. and it's funny too, because, and it goes a little bit, full circle to the idea of relationships and revenue, which we can talk more about for sure, obviously. Um, But I was, I, the book was about to come out. It was two weeks before publication. And even though it had been read by a lawyer and said, it's got the, you know, green light, um, Mm -hmm. the publisher got cold feet and he said, you know what? I I can't do it. I'm scared. The this private school is going to sue. And And it wasn't just the private school, it was the government. They Mm. were afraid they'd get sued because I went up against not just the private school, I went up against the Commissioner for Teacher Regulation in British Columbia. That's Mm. government. And I learned a lot of lessons like don't mess with the government. They have a lot of power, for example. (laughs) (laughs) You think a private school's got a lot of power? I'll tell you the government's got a lot of power and they don't have to play by the rules. They write the rules. And when you're fighting somebody who writes the rules and can change the rules to suit their agenda, you kind of don't have a chance. So I I had to I had to be a bit maverick about it and go my own way. So I was like, okay, I can't fight you guys in, in court because you are the court. But you know where I can fight you? I can fight you through objective media. And so the story was in the largest readership in Canada, the Toronto Star. It was front page, the story about the government and the private school and what they did to kids and how they Mm -hmm. changed the rules to suit themselves. And then when you opened up the newspaper, which I know is a very old fashioned concept, but everybody (laughs) back to your early days, (laughs) you open up the newspaper and literally the entire left panel and the entire right panel was the story. That's because the government was involved. So in a sense, what I've been learning, and this is why gaslit brain really interests me, and I I think it's an important subject for all of us to talk about, certainly right now in the 21st century with everything that's going on, we've got to talk about systems and ask ourselves, are our systems working? And if they're not working, can we find the courage and the depth to change them? And I think we can. I tr- and this is why I say I know it's a bit wordy. And that's one of my curses, everybody. Sorry. But that's why I try <laughs> and say, look, I want to I exit the bullying and abuse paradigm. It's not working for us. Bullying and abuse don't work. So they're outdated. The science tells us they're outdated. The science says they're not productive. They, it's not, it's not going to get you, you know, the, the bottom line. It's not going to create greatness. 
But we've all been trained and raised under the paradigm or the framework to believe that bullying and abuse are a necessary evil for greatness. We might not say it out loud, but we've had it hammered into us and we kind of believe it. And so you see it in sports, you see it in the arts world, you see it in corporations, organizations, you see people, you know, beating other people down with the idea that this will bring greatness. And the truth of it is, from a scientific point of view, it absolutely, or statistical point of view, it does not. So I want to see change. So this is why, you know, I do think there's, it's not for everyone. And I understand that it might be hard to, to sit down and really grapple with taking things out of their silos and putting them into the arena, but it's also productive on one level. It helps us see things differently. Mm -hmm, for sure. Okay. So playing a bit of devil's advocate here, let's say that I agree with your premise that the bullying way of making tougher, better kids We'll just say in sports, we'll just leave it in that arena for now, that that's, it doesn't work. My very next thought slash question that, that came in my mind, I mean, as soon as you said it, it came to my mind. It's like, okay, if that doesn't work, what will? That's a great question. So I oftentimes, when I get interviewed by sport people, so people who their focus, their passion, their, their coaches, whatever, and I work a lot with these people. Mm -hmm. um, they always ask that question. They're like, why, how, like, how are we supposed to do it then? And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, it's such an excellent question. And the answer I would argue, and we'll see if it works for you, is simple. So the simple answer is bullying, if we get really clear on what it is, bullying is demeaning. It's designed to isolate. It's designed to humiliate. It's designed to make the person shamed so they no longer belong. It is designed to pump up your own flailing, flawed ego because you come from really rough background usually. You come from a very hurtful place. You don't come from a healthy, happy childhood. This is well documented. You come from a place of pain. And the way that you relieve that pain is by transferring it. It's just like psychology 101 you transfer it to other people and you know if you think about some of the the big abusers of our time that we've all read about and heard about and so on so you take you take a Harvey Weinstein for example and i know that's not emotional abuse or bullying it was he did a ton of that too but he got very well recognized for sexual abuse now what's fascinating about Harvey Weinstein and it's true for everyone who abuses the the coach who's bullying and the sexual abuser what they do is they repeat the same things over and over and over again because they're trapped in their own wiring that's faulty in their brains. So Harvey Weinstein wears the same towel, the same bathrobe. He asks for the same massage. He invites to the same hotel. It's a broken record and he does it for 30 years. The coach that's abusive, same deal. The coach that's abusive says the same words, swears in the same way, targets certain athletes, uh, to destroy them, uh, props other athletes up on pedestals who don't deserve to be there. They're, it's on a meritocracy. They get positions and opportunities and praise, and they will they'll fight and defend you to the end when when the abuse reports come in. It's a pattern. It's a system. And so what I learned in the research, and I write about this in the bullied brain. Not only did I take a look at what happens to the brains of individuals who are 
badly bullied and abused, I looked at the brains of the people that do it and the research on that. And the research on it is fascinating. They have very um, typical textbook brains, namely they are missing empathy. So mm. if you've been really hurt in your life, if you've been raised in an abusive home or in an abusive school or athletic program or whatever, chances mm. are your empathy and that's your ability to get in, walk in someone else's shoes and feel what they feel and care about it. It's damaged. It's a part of your brain that's actually damaged. It doesn't light up. It doesn't work. And, you know, that's really serious. Like my, I'm not trying to blame and shame myself and say, oh, somebody who abuses kids is a bad person. I'm trying to walk away from that whole argument and go, look, we got to stop being moral about this. Yes, it's a moral ethical thing and the law has to intervene and do its job, but it's also a medical issue. These people have hurt brains. And so my, my catchphrase for this is hurt brains hurt. So how do we make an athlete be tough and powerful and reach their full potential? We're demanding. We demand excellence from them because we believe in them. We never put them down. We tell them that we can see their potential. We inspire them to be motivated. And just to give you a really cool brain version of this. So let's pretend I'm your coach. And I say to you, you know what, John, um, you're, I, I hate the look of you out there. You're lazy. I don't see, you're not trying. You look clumsy out there. Go sit on the bench. If I said that to you, it would activate a bunch of cortisol. And cortisol is a stress hormone. And it pumps up in the brain and the body, as you would know, because you read neuroscience, pumps up in the brain and body when you're under threat. Cortisol, when it's repeatedly activated, like if you're in an abuse situation, the person is abusing you six, seven days a week kind of thing, they're doing terrible damage to your brain and body. And it can be seen. Now, if I said to you, here's demanding, hey, John, I don't know, you're having a bit of an off day. Do you, do you need to take a break? Do you want to, do you need to rest? Are you feeling well? Is there anything wrong? Let me know. No, there's nothing wrong. Okay, well, you know what? I want to light a fire in you. I want to see you push yourself. I know what you can do and I believe in you. I have never seen anyone with a potential like you. If you just give it, give it your all, be creative, go crazy out there. That's going to pump into your brain serotonin, which makes you feel good and kind of excited. But more importantly, it's going to activate by being demanding by me saying, you know what? I want to see you push yourself. I want you out of your comfort zone. I know you can do it. Take some risks, be creative. Let me see what you can do. If it doesn't work, so what? Uh, the brain learns by making mistakes, John. I'm, I'm activating dopamine. When I activate dopamine in your brain, I motivate you to try harder. If you abuse someone, there's no dopamine happening in their brain. They're getting mm. adrenaline and cortisol. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting when you when you first mentioned cortisol, my very first thought was every health expert I've ever had in my life has said that's one of the main things to try and avoid is cortisol coming in the body. Now, the, never have they talked about a cortisol in the brain. You talked about in other parts of the body. And so and I know what an effect it has on other parts of the body. So I can imagine what an impact it has on the brain. Um, wow. Okay. Let me um, just give you an example. Do you yeah. know what cortisol does to the brain? If you look at a brain scan of somebody who's repeatedly abused, that could be verbally, emotionally, physically, sexually, whatever. If they're constantly under threat, so they're constantly releasing cortisol into their brain and body, mm -hmm. and you look at their hippocampus, the hippocampus is a part of the brain that's involved in learning 
and memory. It stores memories, long-term, short-term. Um, it emotionally tags memories. So, that, you know, if something's super emotional, you pull it up mm. more quickly. So mm. the hippocampus um, has all of these, it does many, many things, but it's involved with all of that. If you are constantly bathing a hippocampus in cortisol, it is shrunken and shriveled on a brain scan. Mm. When it's supposed to be plush and lovely and full, that just gives you an imagine, you know how when kids are being bullied by their peers, even they struggle to, to learn and concentrate and their grades go down. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, it's because they feel really badly. It's like, no, it's because their brain is getting hurt. And the brain's job is to concentrate and learn and get great grades. But if you are constantly making that brain afraid, under threat, humiliated, like it doesn't belong, then you're activating cortisol and you're hurting the mechanisms that would allow that child to succeed. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Now, how do you talk to deal with the person who says, okay, I get what you're saying, Jen. It it makes sense to me. But and watch out for that word always. But sometimes something not so pleasant comes after in the conversation. Other times something really good comes after it. In this case, probably not so much. And this person comes to you and says, look, all right, I believe what you're saying. I do. I'm buying into it. But how do you, I'm thinking in terms of children right now, how do you help children deal with the realities of life as they age? How do we help them become well-adjusted adults, realizing not everybody they encounter is going to be as informed as you are? Jen, and and how to to deal with that, because there's going to be people you encounter that maybe not in the traditional sense bully, but they're not always the most pleasant to be around. And one of the things I'm noticing with some of our our younger generations as they're starting to age is they don't know how to interact with someone who doesn't think exactly like they do in every single way. And so I'm not I'm not suggesting that what you're saying isn't right. What I'm saying is, how do we go about incorporating it in such a way that it becomes helpful and beneficial, not just in the present, but going forward in helping these children become adults that are contributors and not bulliers? I'm not sure I'm saying that word right. Yeah, no, no, uh, regardless of bulliers. I don't think I've ever heard bulliers, but it's got a good, it's got a good <laughs> resonance and ring to it. It certainly works. Um, I made it a noun somehow. <laughs> I, I, I try not to use the word bully. Like he's a bully okay. or she's a bully. And I think that's what you're I, I'm saying. only saying that because it's used so often in schools now. Yeah. So if there's a better word, I'd love to hear it. Well, I try to say the individual, it's clunky, but an individual who's using bullying or a bullying individual, because people aren't bullies or not bullies. It's a behavior. And I think if we keep it in that verb okay. world, then it's you know, not who they are. It's something they do. And and it's because their brain is wired that way. So I think or it's become wired that way. It's be that's the key. That is the key. It's become wired that way. And I mean, if we could get our kids to understand that the difference between childhood and adulthood really in the great scheme of things is is being is learning to navigate that place of 
I was wired this way, but I can be whoever I want because what's really important for everyone, like the biggest takeaway I hope your audience has today is that the brain can unwire and the brain yes. can rewire. And yes. that's the only thing that matters. So if you're locked into your belief system and you think because you grew up in a household that, that trained you or you went to a a school that trained you and let's just let's just tiptoe into some really negative spaces for a second because they're they are real and even though they're unpleasant and you know we steer away from them let's imagine somebody who went to a a very um grew up in a very intensive religious household and believes that their god is the only god and that they must adhere to that god and all other religions and all other people who don't adhere to this god are less than. They're dehumanized even. We've seen this through history. That is somebody who's had their brain wired in a very specific way. Lots of ritual, lots of family, lots of reading the text, whatever. That's fine. That's a beautiful thing. And it can create a great foundation for someone, but it also can be deadly in history as we've seen, because these people truly believe on a brain level that's being wired to believe that they are superior and their God is superior. We have seen bloodshed massively on this issue. So that's a really good example. Another good example might be you've grown up in a household where you've been trained to believe that men are superior and women are weak and temptresses or you or they should be controlled or they need to cover their hair or whatever it is you learned that women don't they don't have the right to work outside the home. They can't they can't be professionals. They can't go get education. You might have grown up in that house. That means your brain that started as a kind of a a very open brain, it got wired in a very specific way. So in my book, I talk about, um, you know, dictatorship. So I look at like North Korea, for example, and what they do to wire brains so that by the time these kids grow up, they worship the all-powerful leader of their country. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay. Now, what's powerful to me and what's empowering in the book, The Bullied Brain, is not only do I look at, okay, here's what bullying and abuse does to the brain. That's pretty worrisome. I spend a huge amount of time talking about how we can rewire our brains. So mm. I think the biggest thing we should be teaching kids is neuroplasticity. We should teach them, okay, look, we've all been wired. It doesn't mean it's who we are. It doesn't mean that it isn't beautiful and powerful and meaningful how we are wired. It doesn't mean we weren't traumatized. All those things are real, but we can also change our brains. And if we can change our brains, then we can make really good choices. And just like we can choose to not be fit, and, and sit on the couch and watch Netflix and eat potato chips, or we can say to ourselves, you know what, I'm not fit right now, but I'm gonna start going to the gym. I'm gonna start exercising. I'm gonna flex my muscles. I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a whole other person and you can even see the change in me. That can happen on the brain level as well. The brain is innately wired to repair and recover. If people have been hurt, so what? You can make your brain be stronger, faster, more empathic, more compassionate, sharper, smarter, more athletic. It just requires deliberate practice. And so I look at a lot of the research in the book, how do we do it? And because it's your question is a good one. It's like, it's all very nice to talk about this, but are there practical things that we can do to get our brains healthier and faster and better and stronger? Absolutely. That's the coolest thing about this. Mm. I love that. You know, one of the things that I have uh, devised let me backtrack just a little bit here, Jen. Uh, the whole reason this podcast even exists has everything to do with this picture over my right shoulder. It has me with my three kids. 
there is a person who is not in that picture, and that is my ex-wife. Uh, my divorce took place, uh, wow, almost 14 years ago now. And by far the most dramatic pain I've ever experienced in my life. And it was completely preventable. It was. But I had a choice when that happened. I could wallow in the pain and let it consume me. Or I could choose to figure out, okay, what was my role in all that? What have I been doing wrong? How can I get better so I can improve all my relationships, current and future? And so that's what I did. So I took the most intense pain I ever had. And it became, or my purpose came out of that because I put in the hard work and ultimately led to this platform, pain purpose platform, P3 is what I call that. For those of you listening at home, that is trademarked. <laughs> you have to say that stuff anymore, but <laughs> anyhow, um, but I can, I promise you, I didn't have the vernacular to place on it, but the very things you were just talking about is exactly what took place in here. There were complete ways of looking at things and how I viewed situations. Uh, something that is so simple to say, but very hard to do when you're not used to it is anything that isn't positive coming into your life typically is viewed as negative. So something happening against me. It was like, now I view many of those things as opportunities rather than as something negative. So for instance, you mentioned a little bit ago about the way we learn. And it's something I say on the show all the time. And I know people are sick and tired of hearing this because they told me that. But <laughs> it's like, folks, we have to fail. That's why I ask people all the time, how did you fail today? Because that's how you learn. You don't learn by doing it right. You only learn by doing it wrong. To me, to me, failing means I tried something new, I did it wrong, and I have an opportunity to learn from it. And I contrast that with failure. And see, some people think they're the same. To me, they're not. Failure means I am choosing to stay stuck. Now, the coach in me, I can't help the second person. I can't do a thing to help that person. But the first one I can help all day long. Because if you're willing to try and do things wrong so that you can learn from it and get better, oh man, there's no end to what can happen for you. No and end. So, you know, and when, when you say that and you articulate it so, so personally with the power that comes with that vulnerably and eloquently, it's, it's the key thing that's gone wrong in the system. In the system, starting at a very early age, we tell we tell children all the time, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. You got it, you got a cross, you got a red mark, you made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And and we when we do that, we kill children's understanding that by making mistakes, it's how the brain learns. Right. And so if you watch a one-year-old, you've never seen a more motivated individual in your life to go from crawling to walking. <laughs> that guy doesn't care how dumb he looks. He doesn't care if he falls. Nope. He doesn't care if he falls hundreds of times. He doesn't care if he looks silly grabbing furniture or anything within his grasp before he topples down again. Relentless. That kid gets up and brushes himself or herself off and tries again. That is the most pure form of motivation. And it's mm. inside. 
It's mm-hmm. intrinsic. The brain knows it learns by making a mistake. Cut to four years old and on, children associate making mistakes with failure, with a fixed mindset, with they're not smart, with they disappointed, mm. they get in trouble when their report card is X, Y, Z. It's like the whole system is backwards. It doesn't understand brains. And that's really what we need mm. to change. And so as um, there's a really great, um, I think she's a psychiatrist. I'm sure you know her work. She talks about fixed mindset. That's the person that's stuck. And and they, they can be stuck in believing they're the smartest person in the room. And they can be mm-hmm. stuck believing they're the slowest person in the room. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's growth mindset. And growth yeah. mindset. And so going back to your trauma, it's that difference between PTSD, which is pretty, it's not a disorder. It's an unfair thing to say. We we can't judge what someone's trauma has been. But it's it you can get very stuck in that. And I've heard people say in my line of work, people say to me, I'm traumatized. I'm traumatized. I'm traumatized. And I feel like saying to them, not really. That That is a horrible thing that happened. But you can have post-traumatic growth. And you can have growth mindset. And you can understand hmm. that every trauma that came your way, just as you describe, and I'm not suggesting it's easy. And I don't want to just kind of sugarcoat this stuff because it's not. As you describe, it's the hardest work out there. But there, mm. there's something to be said for hard work. It's okay to work hard at something. It gives it more value. Thank you. Mm. You know, I wish we heard more of that. It That to me seems like, now I realize one of the things we've been talking about mostly on the show today, we've been talking about bullying and how it comes from, you know, an older place from a long time ago, a different, a way of, of doing things and mo- I'm using the term very loosely, but motivating, but this notion of hard work that somehow that is antiquated. I'm sorry. Hard work is never antiquated. I mean, if you want to get somewhere in any field, you got to put the time in. You've got to be willing to do that. And again, I, I, I hate to harp on some of the younger generations, but everything has been handed to them. Everything. I mean, the number of, I can't tell you the number of friends I have that have a hard time, not, they're having a hard time hiring people because they can't find anybody who's willing to actually work. And because these kids, it, they get older and older before they get their very first job because their moms and dads continue to provide for them. It wasn't like that when I was growing up, even though my parents might have been able to do that. Maybe um, there's like, no, you want a car? you're going to pay for it and you're going to have to pay for the insurance and the gas and all the stuff that goes into it. And that requires a job. So you're going to have to get out there and get it. And guess what? If you get fired, you're going to have to find another one because we're not taking you where you need to go. You're going to have to figure it out. You know, it's funny. I was, I was reflecting on the revenue side of things and I had similar parents to yours where we actually grew up with privilege my parents were both professionals and they they took us on amazing travels and we lived in a beautiful house and blah, blah. But it was like, you know, 15, 16, you need to get a job. You really need to get a job and you need to work. And it should be it's like when I went to first year university, I paid for it on scholarship. I mean, if I if I'd been stuck, maybe my parents would have paid, but I paid for all my books with my my job. And I, and I worked in a fish market. <laughs> yeah. When I was, when I, I got accepted to Harvard for grad school. And when I got accepted to Harvard, I got the announcement while I was waitressing. 
I was like, yeah, wow, this is, you know, but that my whole life has been that way. And what's powerful for me in that is that when push came to shove in this abuse crisis, Mm -hmm. I would rather have waitressed than taken the hush money. And they didn't know that about Mm. me. So, you know, I, there I am in front of them with all their lawyers and everything. And they, they had the checkbook out and they were like, look, basically how much do you need for you to be quiet and just shut this thing down? My lawyer was there. And um, so, you know, I wanted them to know that the media were coming. I I wanted them to have one last chance. I've worked with these people for years. I wanted them to Mm -hmm. have one last chance to do the right thing. And so, you know, my lawyer said media, you know, the media is coming. And they were like, oh, what media? You don't have any media. Because they control everything in the province, basically. Mm. But they don't control it nationally. And they didn't think this was a national story. But it was. You know, it was on uh, it was on TV, it was on everything. And so, you know, we tried to give them the chance and they had their checkbook out. And so we were like, oh, yeah, you know, this is how much money, you know, would compensate for what you've done. Um, but I was sitting there thinking to myself, I couldn't be paid to take your dirty money. I'm not going to close my mouth. My job is to protect those students as a teacher and my job is to protect my children as a mother and no amount of money is worth that for me i will not compromise myself even if it means i have to waitress again and and i've been blacklisted i'll never teach again and i don't care i would be more than happy to work as a waitress until i'm too old to do it rather than take that money because it's the relationships that come first and i don't mm. believe that compromising my relationship to myself is worth any amount of hush money, you know, sign here that you're not allowed to speak because speaking is where your power is. Good for you. Good for you. I I don't know how many people would uh, would have done that. You know what? As soon as you sign on the dotted line for the hush money, you're doomed. It's oh, the most unhealthy thing you can do on the planet. Where you get, I mean, and for me, it was deeply personal because my son was one of the victims. And oh. all I cared about was that my son left this crisis understanding that his parents would fight to the ends of the earth for him because he is valuable. And no matter what they said to him, no matter how much they lied about him, no matter how much they abused him, we were going to fight tooth and nail, my husband Mm -hmm. and I, until the end. And we did. And we still are. I mean, I'm still writing about it now. I'm still talking about it now. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that this is a small microcosm of what is going on all over the place and I'm excited about the possibility that if we just introduce the brain science as a group, all of us, we could change. You know, because I know you are the type of person that you are, and you will continue to, in, in my words, fight the good fight. Part of that is writing for you, clearly. I'm wondering if there's a book in your future about, as it relates to the brain, this idea of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset because i there's plenty of writings out there but not from that perspective is that something you would consider well okay i'm really glad you you asked that question or phrased it that way let me just run an idea past you for your opinion just be honest Please. yeah okay so this book i'm working on is called the gaslit brain and mm-hmm. it's it at the core of the book is more of this abuse situation that happened with the students. But the abuse in this context was sexual abuse of a student by an educator. And it's part of this whole complicated big story. So what I was trying to figure out is it's very tragic, 
but the victim of this sexual abuse, and this is typical, got so confused by the gaslighting, the institutional complicity, all the adults in her world who were not telling the truth and were trying to cover up and trying to protect mm. the reputation of the school and the government, they basically got her so gaslit, so confused. She didn't know if she was the victim by the end of it or the villain, that kind of confusion. Now, wow. I think the greatest, and so I've been asking myself the question, how do we protect ourselves against gaslighting? We're very, we're very susceptible to it. I mean, we are easily led to believe certain things. And, you know, you described the change in your own brain this way. You said, um, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but this is what I heard. You said, I used to interpret certain um, situations as negative. In other words, like kind of a non-starter, a destructive thing, a hurtful thing, maybe even. I don't see it that way anymore. Here's growth mindset. I recognize that yes, negative things happen and they're opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yes, mistakes are made by me and they're, they're opportunities for insight into how to do better next time. Yes, it requires work. I'm pleasant, but it requires work <laughs> and there is value in that. Okay, so I'm wondering if in, in the third part of the book, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do we protect ourselves against gaslighting? And I have a number of theories and one of them is growth mindset. It's the idea that okay. if we can remain flexible in our, if we work really hard to have brains that don't believe whatever's told to us, that actually mm. that listen to what's told to us, but then take a step back and ask some key questions like, is there a larger agenda at play? Is this, per why do I believe this person is trustworthy? Is this person reflecting actually to me, my own desires and fears and wants? And it's a bit of a fictional face that they're presenting to me or mirroring me with so that I'm responding with all this. Like, I mean, that's what happens in, in romantic relationships. The psychopath, yeah. the narcissist yeah. gives you the face of everything you want and believe and hope for. And then once that happens that they've got you and you're gaslit, then they start to unravel you. That's their yeah. pattern they need to do. And that happens to a lot of people. And it, But it also happens on the political level. So macrocosm. Sure microcosm and mm -hmm. they're they are very very similar so anyways i think that growth mindset is one of our superpowers it's like empathy it's that ability to hold two things at once which is really mm -hmm. hard it's it's hard to say to look at someone and say this trusted administrator is telling me it's just old school coaching i've worked mm -hmm. with this man for eight years he's the most powerful in the school he's my boss I don't believe what he's telling me. That's okay. I, I don't need to condemn him for it, but I do need to start asking some questions and doing some research. I need to try and establish mm -hmm. a ground base for myself. I shouldn't just believe everything that's told to me. And I always use the Trojan horse as an example for this. I don't know if people remember it's ancient mythological, but it's a really good one. Mm -hmm. The Greeks bring this wonderful, huge, life-size gift of a horse to the Trojans. They've been sieging them for close to 10 years. The Trojans accept the gift as a gift. Now, why would you do that? It's been given to you by your enemy. Why right. would you think it's this wonderful <laughs> gift? But they do. Because they're their brains are wired to believe that a gift is meant for kindness and to give you chances and to honor you. So right. they, they don't ask the question. They don't go, is it possible that a gift is sometimes destructive and dangerous? They don't make that mental leap. They don't do growth mindset on it. They just believe how they're wired. Don't ask any questions. And so they bring the horse in 
And in the middle of the night after they celebrate and party and they have this wonderful horse and they're all sound asleep, the Greek soldiers get out of the horse and slaughter them. That's the Trojan horse. And we all need to remember that even if you trust the person, even if they've given you the fictional face, even though they told you they care about you, it might not be true. And that's a hard truth to live with, but it's maybe what keeps us safe from gaslighting and some of the very painful mistakes we can make. Oh, reminds me of a very famous quote from Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. Thanks for tuning in to part one of my interview with Dr. Jen Frazier. We had a great time today, and I really hope that you'll stick around for part two of my interview with her. So absorb this information, let it become a part of you, let it hopefully change the way you do things, and tune in next time to get the rest of the conversation. Thanks for being here today, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.